Roger Williams University is hosting a crisis management seminar on May 3rd at their Providence campus. Crises, whether a natural disaster, cyber attack, or financial instability, can have severe repercussions if not handled properly. This is where crisis management plays a pivotal role. Join Roger Williams' MBA students and expert speakers to learn how to prepare for the unexpected. The program is totally free and open to the public. You can register online at rwu.edu slash events slash crisis management symposium. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. All right, so we are here with Patrick Crowley, the Secretary Treasurer for the Rhode Island AFL-CIO. Thanks. This is your first time on the show. I'm really happy to be doing this. Yeah, thank you, Bill. I'm glad to be have the opportunity. So here we are. It's uh, We're in the thick of election season. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon, a couple hours before the first poll of the general election is set to be released. You know, just from your perspective, from Labor's perspective, you've already made your endorsements. It's not as if that's you know, this big October surprise all of a sudden or anything like that. But what are you looking for in terms of just this election cycle? Um, and and what, what are you hoping to see? And what is labor hoping to see out of this? Well, from our point of view, we've seen a great deal of momentum over the last couple of years as it relates to working class issues in the state. Governor McKee has done a great job as it relates to you know, everyday working Rhode Islanders and making sure that their needs are attended to, whether or not it is this fantastic budget that he got passed with the help of the General Assembly, the $250 tax credit. But more importantly, from my point of view, it's really the labor issues that he's been attentive to over the last few years. You know, we've had a number of legislative wins that are very important. The path to $15 minimum wage, front and center on that. But there's also things like making sure that security guards and janitors uh, working on the state contracts get paid prevailing wage. The uh, inclusion of the prevailing wage standards within all of the environmental projects that are going to be happening, the 100% renewable energy standard, the offshore wind procurement, the Act on Climate of 2021. I mean, the list is really long when it comes to the idea of the intersection between working people and government, and especially on the climate front. One thing that's interesting is this treasurer's race that we have here, obviously with pensions and and really the reestablishment of COLA. And, you know, but some have made the argument that James Diosa, although he had a, a hand in major hand, really, in the, the even the, the vibe transformation of Central Falls, that he was kind of, I even heard Jim Hummel on uh, filling in for Tara Granahan here on WPRO say, oh, he was on training wheels, there was a state takeover. Then you've got James Lathrop on the Republican side who has a fiscal background, North Kingstown, Hopkinton, and I believe some municipality in Connecticut. So looking at that race, you know, where the pension is really the number one thing that the treasurer manages, and I think that's pretty fair to say, where do you stand on that? You've made your endorsements, but are you comfortable with the experience that Diosa brings to the table? I really am. I really think that James Diosa is going to be the best treasurer candidate that we have in November, and I think he's going to do a fantastic job. Mr. Lathrop is an intelligent person. He seems like he's a very qualified for the work that he does. But the treasurer's office is more than just numbers and cents. It really is a wide range of portfolio under its uh, umbrella. And front and foremost for us in the labor movement, sure, is the pension system. But it's also things like the infrastructure bank that he has a great deal of involvement in. And as the federal government is going to be loading all this money into Rhode Island, so much of it is going to go through the infrastructure bank. That takes someone with policy experience. That takes someone with leadership experience. And I think James is the perfect person for that job going forward. Soccer stadium. 
you know, look, the B-side's got to get built in order for this thing to be profitable. We all know that. At the same time, you know, the, the ground is broken. I was standing there. I had the hard hat on. It's it's real. It's This is happening. Um, obviously, it's a victory for labor. It's a major project. How important is it not only from the funding formula standpoint, but from, you know, hey, look, work available work opportunities. Is it to you and to labor to get Tidewater, the B-side, in motion, full swing, no second guessing, so on and so forth, as soon as possible. Yeah, look, the jobs are important, no doubt. But mm-hmm. as a soccer fan, I'm really excited about the fact that Tidewater is going to be opening up. Yeah. Because I really think that's going to be a draw for people from southeastern Massachusetts, all of Rhode Island, Connecticut, to come into Pawtucket and see what the city has to offer. It's really going to be a key to economic development. And when you couple that with the new train station that's going to be put in place, but also with the free R-Line from Ripta that's going to be running through the city of Pawtucket into, into Providence, you can really see the opportunity for people coming from Boston by train, stopping at Tidewater, seeing a soccer game or maybe a concert, and then continuing on through public transportation into the city of Providence, and then making their way back home. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be an economic engine for the next decade, at least here in Rhode Island. A lot of naysayers on this project, you know, um, that... Look, it's only, whatever, 17 home soccer games, maybe playoff games. I think one thing that stands out to me is that the tradition that you have with, like, a Rhode Rhode Island Rams basketball or Providence College Fires or even arguably the P Bruins, it's going to take a long time to build that out. Do you think that we have the economic resiliency right now to allow for that development? Sure, there'll be initial excitement day one, season one, but at some point you're going to have that that intersection of – um, true fandom, tradition, hey, I went here with my family that you get in a PC basketball game that hopefully is going to drive this thing into the future. But there's going to be a little time in between where this thing takes time to develop. Are we resilient enough to withstand that that period? I think so, and I think Rhode Islanders are going to enjoy the experience. I mean, I'm hoping that they name the soccer team the Pawtucket Strikers Yeah, because I just think <laughs> that has so much, you know, there's so much uh, history to it. And I think this is going to be a yes. project that uh, once the game gets on the field and once concerts start to take place, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a draw that people in Rhode Island are going to be proud of. Moving beyond just the big ticket items, because there's a lot of them at play. I mean, Superman, that's obviously going to be a refurb of significant nature. The micro projects around the state right now, whether you're talking about Block Island or Westerly or Newport, wherever, there's a lot of concepts that are being unveiled that are behind the scenes or make their way in the municipal papers, but not necessarily a statewide conversation. How healthy is labor right now just in terms of the projects that are being developed in the state? Um, and, and do you feel comfortable that when we hear people say, oh, Rhode Island's, you know, there's no opportunity here, you know, you have to move out of town if you want to have a job, uh, specifically from labor standpoint, are we in a healthy place right now? We are. I mean, I know it's been a few years, but I'm actually yeah. one of those people that moved into Rhode Island for a job opportunity. Yeah. And I think with all of the construction and all of the resiliency work that we're building, never mind the fact that I think we're actually creating a new economy here in Rhode Island. You know, we were the first state in the nation to have an offshore wind farm. Mm-hmm. And I think our footprint in the environmental development area is going to be really key to our future growth. When you think about a thousand megawatts of offshore wind procurement that's going to be taking place in the spring of this year and all of the jobs that come with it it's not just people in hard hats going up and installing wind turbines it's the professionals it's the lawyers it's the accountants and how that really imbues itself with throughout the entire economy is going to be something that is unique here in rhode island but also something that we can look at as a model throughout the region the blue economy 
a lot of people hear about it. You know, it's it's real. It's or it's been here since. I mean, the indigenous population inhabited this area. You know, fisheries and transportation. It's all real. But now we get into an era where obviously wind turbines. We have the array off of uh, Block Island Sound. We have. Uh, as you say, additional projects coming. But there's also elements like Smart Bay, and uh, which in a nutshell means sensors in the ocean that can measure anything from tidal activity to the ecosystem and to even, you know, the, the measuring uh, import exports and so on and so forth. Is labor in Rhode Island, our existing workforce, ready to adapt to these new um, elements of the blue economy super sector and what should someone who's maybe 15, 16 right now and saying, hey, look, I want to get into this space. Where should they be kind of positioning themselves to be ready for Rhode Island's workforce of the next 10, 20, 30 years? Absolutely. I mean, when you look at what the labor movement is doing to adapt to the new economy, especially within our friends in the building trades, their apprenticeship programs are geared towards this new economy, whether it's the blue economy on ocean work or the green economy as it relates to solar installations. Mm -hmm. All of that work is really being coordinated by especially the IBW Local 99, the laborers, Local 271, the Iron Workers Union, the, the Painters Union, they all have apprenticeship programs geared specifically towards this new economy. And that, combined with our partnership at, down at URI, who have been focused on the blue economy for years now. I mean, I like to think of URI not just as an engine for the economy, but it's a union-made engine for the economy. Everyone that works at URI, or most of the people that work at URI, are members of either NEA, AFSME, uh, the the trades have a number of folks there. So the labor movement has a real vested interest in making sure this works. Absolutely. Full disclosure, my dad was a maintenance person at, at URI, a member of the union for years. And as one of the benefits of that was I got to go to URI for free because my dad worked there. I mean, those are the types of incentives that are oftentimes overlooked when we talk about the, the, the various elements of labor in Rhode Island. Absolutely. No, it's, it, it really is a key, especially when you think of how you know, universities are communities in and of themselves, and being able to have conversations around the dinner table or at the workplace about not just what we're doing day to day, but how our work fits into the bigger picture is really an exciting opportunity. Patrick Crowley, the uh, Secretary Treasurer of the AFL-CIO here in Rhode Island. So it's always weird when I get into this space because I am part of the media now, like it or not, That's I definitely am. Uh, and the show definitely is. But do you think media understands and covers and portrays labor in a way that is easily digestible for the state as a whole? So that's been one of my pet peeves about Rhode Island media for a mm. long time. I mean, we have some really fantastic reporters, yourself included among them. Thank you. And they, they do spend a lot of time focusing on you know, the labor issues, but they do it from a frame of how we interact with, in politics. And, you know, while we are very active in the political realm, that's really only one part of what we do. I'd love to see the day when instead of showing what bank vice president is getting promoted or what hospital CEO is going to be changing you know, places, that there's also as much focus about who's going to win the next union election for one of the bigger unions in the state. Who, what shop steward has organized 50 new members into their workplace? Those are the stories at the ground level that are just as important for people to cover because I think it shows the resiliency and the vibrancy of the labor movement in this state because we really are 
one of the stronger labor movements in the country. When you think about all of the things that we have going on, whether it's our training programs, our education programs, our activities within um, the the humanitarian field or the charitable field, you know, for example, the Big Brothers and Big Sisters, where the Building Trades are sponsoring a walk for them on October 22nd at Roger Williams Park. It's like the fifth or sixth year in a row that they've done it, and they've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. We really are a fabric in the community. And I'll just give you one example of that. One of the other hats I wear is as the government relations director for NEA Rhode Island. Sure. NEA Rhode Island has 12,000 members across the state. So when you think about that, one out of every 100 people is a member of NEA Rhode Island. Add our households in, we're pretty big. Yeah. And you know, so chances are people know a union member, have one in their family in a way in, the, in Rhode Island that, that really doubles our impact. What a stat. I've never heard that stat before, and it's like I feel like Bob Walsh would love would have in his time as as um, executive director. That's a stat that would should have. I'm sure he said it or knows it, but absolutely, that's a great talking point. Yes, it is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's this notion that people on Twitter. It seems more inside baseball, but I get bombarded a lot of times with this whole. And and look, you hear it with uh, the governor is handing out $3,000 to union members when really that's a negotiating tactic to ensure that those the, the, those raises, quote-unquote, aren't built into contracts over the long term. Right. There's a lot of misunderstanding of what's actually happening. But the optics are sometimes that labor unions have an unfair advantage here in Rhode Island. What do you say to the people that spend, it seems like, an enormous amount of time with that agenda and trying to push that agenda? It- it is an advantage. It's not an unfair advantage. Mm. Working people in unions have an advantage over non-union workers. I mean, that's just the facts. And I don't think that's something that we should run away from. It's something that we should celebrate. That's why we organize more workers. That's why the workers at Seven Stars Bakery joined the United Food and Commercial Workers yeah. Union, Local 328. That's why the workers at DHL with teams as Local 251 are on strike right now. There is an advantage to being a union member. And it's having a voice at work to be able to make sure that your employers are treating you respectfully, but also so that you can get better benefits, better wages, and family-sustaining benefits and wages so that you can enjoy the fruits of your labor. Interesting way to frame that as well. And we saw it with White Electric, a cafe on Westminster Street, where unionizing is becoming... Uh, we saw it fail at a Starbucks in Warwick, but unionizing, even in the food services sector, um, is starting to become more popular. You know, as a musician myself, there's very little freelancer or artist unionship here in Rhode Island. But I saw in New York, boy, you know, plenty of opportunities where you can join a freelancer type union. Do you think that in this era of the remote workforce, shifting employment, a lot more uh, content creators, quote unquote, and individuals who are pursuing really what aren't businesses, but like micro entities Mm -hmm. or using their talents to generate income. Do you think there's space for that kind of freelancer, independent worker union membership here in Rhode Island? Absolutely. I mean, when you really think about it, especially with freelancers and like in the music field, for example, uh, one of my friends on the Labor History Society board is Joey DeFrancisco. Mm -hmm. Joey's an artist here in Providence and he's working on trying to establish some kind of, you know, musicians, freelancer type of organization, whether Mm -hmm. it's a, call it a union or call it something else. But it's the idea that being able to come together, maintain your autonomy, but establish some base standards that every musician, every artist should be able to, you know, work with their, you know, 
employer, even if it's an employer for a night only. And I think the labor movement over the over history has demonstrated that there are innovations that we can have, you know, all across the board. And I think especially with younger people, especially with industries that have popped up over the last 25, 30 years, especially in the freelance uh, arena, there's new opportunities that don't have to fit into any pre-described mode. Mm -hmm. As long as it's working people coming together and advocating for themselves without any intermediaries, I think that's a a benefit. Earlier this year, I guess it was June, I, I went to a project on, it's in the Jewelry District of Providence, where the Painters Union was holding a protest non-union uh, workers are being utilized in on a major development project here in Rhode Island. In general, what is the <clears throat> the scenario, so to speak, the percentage or uh, the, the amount of non-union labor that's used on some of the major projects that we have here in Rhode Island where the prevailing wage is not even remotely attained by many of the workers? Sometimes these people, at least that I was observing in that, that one instance, are you know, English is a second language or not spoken at all and is used as a weapon against them. How often is that happening here? Too often. I mean, that's the fundamental answer. So there are there are still too many non-union facilities, too many non-union projects that are happening in the state. And I know our friends in the trades do a lot of work going out and scouting these operations, tracking them down, talking with the workers, and trying to make sure that they understand that they have rights on the job and that they should be, be mindful of what they're being paid and how they're being paid. It's one of the reasons why we're trying to make wage theft a felony in this state. Because what we see too often is these contractors come into Rhode Island, they don't pay the prevailing wage or they don't pay their workers at all, mm-hmm. and then they skip town and the workers are left holding the bag. Rhode Island is one of, one of the many states in the country where wage theft is treated as a misdemeanor, not a felony. So if I break into your house or I break into the studio here and I take all of this nice equipment, Chances are it's going to be worth more than fifteen hundred bucks. Right. I'm going to be tagged with a felony, and if I'm if I'm convicted, I might go to jail. But if I'm a boss and I don't pay you fifteen hundred dollars or five hundred dollars or fifteen thousand dollars, it's just a misdemeanor. So there's no there's no disincentive in the law to protect working people. So that's why we're really trying to make sure that all of these projects where non-union workers are at, we want to make sure that they hear the union message. But we also want to make sure that the powers that be understand that the laws that we do have in place are inadequate to protect them, so we need to strengthen them. That'd be an interesting episode with you and other leadership from from Union and and Attorney General Narona looking at wage theft. Oh, Attorney General Narona has been an absolute leader on this issue. He's made it his priority legislation the last couple of years, and I'm really hoping that going into the General Assembly session in 2023 that we get it over the finish line here. Patrick Crowley, he's the Secretary General of the AFL-CIO here in Rhode Island, also with the National Education Association Rhode Island. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. This has been great.